This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We are back live, by the way, just back from a week up at the cottage, a week of, well, I'm trying to think of the right word that would describe how bad I was at fishing this past week. Spent hours out on the boat. I am, as I wrote a few weeks back, I was writing a story about fishing. I am what you would call, um, I'm not a good fisherman. I'm, I'm, I enjoy doing it. I like being out there. I find it very relaxing. I am a bad, bad fisherman. And I got to tell you, I have a tackle box filled with stuff. I, every year I figure I found the new lure. So I buy one or two and I've got, I don't want to say hundreds, but dozens and dozens and dozens of lures. Five fishing rods of all different kinds that I've been roped into buying over the years with different reels, different kinds of line. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I got a fish finder, portable one that I can strap onto the boat when I get up there. Never finds any fish. I'll tell you, I don't know why they call it that. It's a depth finder, really, a big rock finder. And I went, I got up at five every morning, was up at five in the boat by 5.15, traveling all over the lake. And I got two measly little, peasly little fish over the course of the week. I, in the 40 hours, the first 40 hours that I was on the boat, I caught two sad, emaciated, anorexic fish that had an eating disorder. I mean, these things were so small, they could barely be identified and described as a fish. And then I finally was so frustrated the last day. This is a great, you know, this is the way fishing stories always go. No, I didn't catch one that was nine feet long. That's not what I'm saying. I was so frustrated that I just got in the boat, went off our dock, sort of blew out, drifted along outside the cottage, went nowhere, dropped in a rubber worm on a bear hook, and in three hours caught 17 bass. I could have literally stood on the dock all week and caught more fish then blowing my gas budget on the boat all over the lake, going to every corner of the lake, finding every weed bed I could possibly find that held no fish, and off my dock, essentially, 17 fish in three hours. So that was the extent of, that's what I did last week. Feeling very, very ridiculous about it by the end of the week, I'll tell you. To think that you go to all that effort, you study the lake. I, before I left, I studied maps of the lake, where the, cause I've been there before we go there every year, but I thought this year, I'm, I, I mean, we've caught other things, but I really, I, I studied it. I wanted to know where we were going to go and it was absolutely useless and you don't even try anymore. You basically just, it, it, again, you just say, forget it. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to drop in a stupid rubber worm and bam. Well, what's that fish? Oh, that's not a weed. That's a fish. And then take it off, put it back in the water. Boom. Another fit. So next year. You know what's going to happen. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to go off the dock. There's going to be nothing. And I'm going to have to spend my whole time looking for that good spot again. But anyway, that's why I hope you had a great week. Uh, I was not the only one, however, who was on vacation last week. Don Robertson just got back from somewhere north of the North Pole, I think. You were you were up where, what what happens? I mean, does the tree line end and it just becomes snow at some point when you where you went? So last Wednesday, Susan and I... Um, you remember John Candy and, and Steve Martin? Yes, absolutely. So we take the GO train to Billy Bishop Airport. Yes. 
we take the Billy Bishop, uh, we take Porter to Thunder Bay, and we drive seven hours straight northwest of Thunder Bay. Is there anything there? I didn't know you could get that far. I thought Red, you'd fall off the edge of the earth. Red, it's, it, it's not the um, tail end of the world, but it's right next beside it. You can see it from there. We pull into Red Lake, population 4,700, and I've been told the road ends there. But until you pull in, we're going to see uh, Sue's son, Stephen, and his fiance Aaron. And we pull into Red Lake, and there's a T in the road. It's the only stoplight, the northernmost stoplight in Ontario. And it says Highway 105 ends. So it's literally the end of the earth. It's the end of the road. And the airport, and uh, Stephen, this weekend in Red Lake, they had the Norseman Festival. And... uh, Sousa's son, Stephen, flies one of, ol- two, one of only four Norsemen left in commercial operation. They were used in World War II to fly guys out to hunt camps and fish, ca- fish camps. The people he worked for for two years when he first went up there um, told me in 1963 the Red Lake International Airport, which was the harbor, was busier than Toronto International Airport because of the gold mines and everything else. Now, I'm only repeating what I was told. It's, it seems like speculation and hard to believe until you see all these float planes flying out and the parking lot full of American license plates. The fishing must be fabulous. and Better he, than what I was doing, I'm sure. Well, and then Stephen took us out fishing, and I had to buy my fishing license because they didn't take it with me and didn't want to lose the boat, and caught a northern pike, which is nice. like a... Not much fun. A bunch of pickerel, uh, a perch. Sue's caught two or three pickerel, which apparently, since I've started, quit fishing and started again, are now walleye. Yes, yes. And uh, we went to a spot. I laughed at your joke, thinking we'd get more off the dock. We had a fish fry that night. And uh, it was amazing. We went to a place, got a few, went to another place, got a whole bunch. Then we had to go somewhere else. So we went four other spots and finally went back and said, we better get the rest of dinner. So it's amazing where if you're catching fish, I don't understand it, why you would leave. So I get your, I'm going to do it from the dock standpoint. But they had little air show up there, and there's 4,700 people, and it's all driven by gold mines. And Stephen and Aaron have a beautiful little house up there. It's some, they bought it. They live in it. It's really a little piece of Canadiana, but the road stops, and for good reason, because we were seven hours. Well, and in two weeks, they have their first snowfall. Uh, they're predicting it next Saturday. Well, we were we were there for the summer, and we were given a three-week window. It's unbelievable. Other than the, the mosquitoes were about 247 pounds, um, it's an absolutely wonderful place. It's a long drive. Yeah, it's the one place where the mosquitoes slap you. Yeah, but <laughs> they were almost as big as I, I was. Chris Pronger's from Dryden. So we drove through Dryden two and a half hours before we got there. And he was up this weekend because Dryden had some big festival. But I'll tell you, northern Canada, northern Ontario is very special. And the Americans obviously think so. But the the how busy that airport was. Stephen was in and out all the time to these camps, flying people in and out. It's unbelievable. And the fishing must be great. I have not been up that far. Uh, furthest I've ever gone north is Timmins. Um, I just remember when I was a kid, I had a hockey tournament in North Bay. And North Bay now, I mean, back then, 
North Bay seemed like it was what you just described, the end of the world. Yeah. But North Bay is not really four and a half hours now. That far north, and I, I remember the arena they was moved one, it. yeah, the arena was one of those old semicircle, uh, corrugated iron, looked like an airplane hangar, and that's all it was. And there was no insulation, there was no heat. And I was the goalie, and we had a pretty good team. And so I remember standing there for that game, not having anything to do, and almost freezing to death. My toes were, I, I can remember this today. I was nine years old. My toes, I've never been, I've, I couldn't feel my feet at all. Would it be because your teammates thought that was your only chance to win? Did you keep the puck out of my end? <laughs> yeah. Darn right it was. I'll tell you, small town, Ontario, it was so great. I mean, I grew up in Linden, I've said it a hundred times, 500 people, and you go up there. You know, in the outdoor rink, they don't have an indoor rink there. The, the neighboring town has an indoor arena. And... Um, so they had it on the outdoor rink, a rock concert. They had heavy metal, like three or four of the feature bands. I I don't get it. They're all pilots. Everybody loves it. Everybody knows everybody. There's a, The Daily Paper was the Dryden paper, which comes out twice a week. That's the Daily Paper. I'm thinking, what am I going to read? So I read online the spec every day. And uh, but you know they don't have a daily paper up there, and they don't care. And the TV never. Well, I'll tell on. you why they don't care. Because I saw a picture you posted on Facebook, or someone did with you attached to it, of had to be seventy cases of beer that were sitting on a dock somewhere, ready to fly to somewhere. So, so the care package was heading north, uh, and that was probably one day's worth. On Friday, they uh, some fellow that was flying out hurt his hand, had to go to the hospital, get stitched up, and we pulled in and. The owner of the company, Chimo Air, said to Suze, uh, or to Stephen, do you want to take your mom out to one of the camps? So she flew out to one of the camps and said it was like a, like a golf course. It was manicured, boats pulled up. I didn't get a chance to go out because it rained on Saturday. I was there when they come back. They took 26 cases of beer off, this, off the plane Stephen was flying and 12 cases of cans. Like it looks like it was Woodstock two out there. <laughs> I don't, so I said to the owner, "What do you do?" And she said, "That's our party at the end of the year." I mean, they could fly every everybody to Cancun based on the empties they're dragging That's out of right. there every week. It's unbelievable. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, I uh, hope everyone else who's been away has uh, has also had a uh, has a good time and had caught more fish than uh, than I did. Maybe not as many as Don did by the sounds of it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. O.J. Simpson was granted parole last week. He will be getting out of jail after serving nine years of a kidnapping and armed robbery and variety of other things, conviction. And I suspect, Don, that as soon as he gets out, there are going to be all kinds of media people, and I don't blame them. If If I could get him on this show, I'm not proud of it, but I would likely jump at the opportunity. Uh, but I think there's lots of people in the media who will be saying, yeah, come on my show, do an interview here. And I think there's an awful lot of people listening who would say, that is outrageous, that's crazy, That that's wrong. And I don't, as I say, I'm not proud of the fact that I would say that if he was available, I probably would ask him on here. But would you listen? If O.J. Simpson now, who... In all likelihood, and I believe 100%, but, you know, he killed his wife and someone else was involved in our robbery, has beat his wife in the past. He's, for all the stuff that he said in his parole hearing, that he's had a conflict-free life, 
which I don't know how he said that without choking on his own tongue, quite honestly. Would you tune in if he was doing a TV interview or a radio interview or a newspaper interview? Would you be watching or reading? Everybody is. O.J. Simpson is like a car wreck. You shouldn't look, but you're going to look. You shouldn't listen. You shouldn't pay attention. We're talking about it on a Monday night sports show. Uh, It's been all over the media, the fact that he's trying to get parole. He didn't spend nine years in jail because of that attempted or that armed robbery. It was payback. Those guys get, you know, they get community service work for armed robbery in Vegas. All right, so they give they give him a year. Well, you don't get nine years. Nobody got shot. They they shoot guys on a regular basis down there and give them three weeks. Let's put it this way: the police and the prosecutors threw every charge at him they could possibly think of, and the judge is sitting there going, "Okay, now we're we're gonna we're gonna make a little correction here, mm-hmm. no because doubt. there's more evidence that you killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman than the the fact that you didn't. A hundred percent. So now you're gonna pay." So, the Americans love a train wreck. Canadians love a train wreck. I mean, if one of the Toronto Blue Jays does something absurd or a Toronto Maple Leaf and he's a third-line player or a platoon player for the Toronto Blue Jays, you can be a star if you do something stupid. And everybody likes that. The society's changed. Does anybody justify what he's doing? But They want to hear him. I mean, he's the juice, right? He played in Buffalo. He was a legendary player, but... You know what? It, it shouldn't happen, but it sure will. Uh, see, I, I think a lot of people will take the position, and I don't blame them, but I think a lot of people will take the position that I am not going to lower myself to spend a moment on O.J. Simpson. And I actually applaud that position the chat, The problem is, I don't believe that anyone's going to stick with it, or very few. I think a lot of people would say that very thing. At least publicly, they would say, "I'm not. No, I am not going to watch." And they will watch. Sure, they will. They will watch, even if they only watch with looking, peering between their fingers while they cover their eyes. They will find a way to find out because, and I don't. I don't really understand because I don't. Would th- would there be the same fascination if you maybe maybe so if you could get an interview with Charles Manson? Now I know that Charles Manson and O.J. Simpson are not exactly the same story, but they're not far off. Charlie Manson never killed anybody. Well, not not at his own hands. You're he right, but he didn't do it with his own hands. Yeah, no, no, you're right. But I, he instructed a bunch of followers to do stuff, which is really wacky. O.J. Simpson's a puke. I mean, come on. If I, I, as I say, I don't know if there would be this kind of interest if Charles Manson, I don't know if there would be this kind of interest in, I don't know. But, well, you know, you know who I put O.J. Simpson in the same category as now as far as who people say they probably would not listen to, but they would. If you could get, and I, I mean, I hate to mention their names on this show because I always hate to give them more attention. But if you could get an interview with Carla Homolka or Paul Bernardo, People would say, I'm not listening to that. I don't want to give those people a second of time. Could you imagine if we had them on the air? What what would happen with ratings? And it's the same with O.J. Simpson. And here's the thing. Legitimate, credible news organizations may ask O.J. Simpson to come on and do an interview. But it's the ones that pay that I don't give a second's worth of credibility to because as soon as you start paying interview subjects, 
you're they're deciding that they want to get you want to get value for their money. They're going to say something whatever. But someone's going to pay him a boatload of money. He's going to step out of jail and walk into a huge pile of money because some disreputable TV show or radio show or magazine is going to say, we want to get the exclusive with you. And this guy that's in jail for reason, he's in jail for a reason. He's been in jail nine years for a reason. Don is going to walk out and make more immediately than you and I, and probably almost anyone listening is going to make in the next five years. But we all know he's in jail for the wrong reason. And God bless the the judge who put him there. I, I think I, I think I said he was a puke. I meant to say puke just in case I don't have enough liability insurance. Um, but he um, he he was in jail for the wrong reason, like I'd said earlier. But you know what? Everybody will listen. Everybody will watch. And that, that cash is going to be put right in front of him. You're right when he walks out. And there's going to be pictures of him golfing. Yep. And there'll be all kinds of with, buddies. With people from the public coming and giving him a, ha- a high five and a handshake. And, and guys paying to fly him in to golf with them and everything else. I mean, that's the American way. Frank writes in, I'll listen to him being interviewed by you. Well, we'll see. Um, Only after the murderer of Nicole and Ron has been found and arrested. See, I'm hoping that OJ sticks to his vow that he will spend every last waking minute of his life hunting for the real killers. That he won't be on the golf course. He will be in the bushes. He will be staking out homes at night in his secondhand car. He will be doing everything possible to find the real killers, to bring them to justice in the few days that he has left, because he's now a 70-year-old man. Well, if he, if, if, if in fact that's... <laughs> my his, tongue is planted deeply in my cheek, by the way, for those who can't see if, me. If in, fa- if, in fact, that's always been his plan, he was certainly in the right place to be looking. Yeah, he was... Because good guys aren't walking around with me and you all the time, I'll tell you that. Well... They're likely... In, if he believes that, and if there was any evidence to suggest he's right, the guy's likely already in jail. But the fact is, well, it was. He, he must he have was, thought he was the the killer. Amazingly, was in the same jail cell as him. He must have <laughs> thought for years that that killer was golfing, because every picture I saw, <laughs> that's true. OJ was golfing. Part of a going, memorabilia show. I think he's working. The, I think he's a greenskeeper at this yeah. golf course. Let's yeah. go there. Or he sells merchandise. At a memorabilia show where he can do autographs. But I'm telling you, the killer was in O.J. Simpson's jail cell. That's the, that's the part that was so shocking. He was right there the whole time. All he had to do was look in the mirror. Anyway, it is, uh, I, I, see, I think, I think that will be, that, that drives me nuts because as I say, it's not, if he wants to give an interview to, I don't know, who's, who's the hardest hitting reporter out there today. I mean, whoever's listening, pick whoever you think would be that person. If you Her- want to give an interview to them. Geraldo. No. No. If Mike Wallace was still You're alive. You're talking about, we're talking bizarre. Right? No, I know. But if Mike Wallace was still alive from 60 Minutes, a, a man who could literally make presidents sweat by the questions he would ask. If Mike Wallace was still alive and OJ Simpson wanted to get out of jail and say, I will now be interviewed by Mike Wallace and answer every question without conditions. I would say that I will listen to. That I would eagerly want to have a, a listen to. But you know who he's going to end up being interviewed by. It's going to be by some celebrity gossip hound thing with all kinds of conditions, with all kinds of stuff that we're not allowed to talk about, and it will be pathetic. 
and he will make a ton of dough off this. That's the part of this that drives me nuts. If you want to be legit, if you want to come out and subject yourself to a real interview, that's fine. That's that I'm okay with. Why would he do that? He hasn't done he's, it yet. But, and I, that's Other than I he needs a bunch of cash. Uh, that's, well, there's all kinds of reasons. But A, he's not going to subject himself to that. And B, you're right. He needs the money and someone's going to give him a boatload of money. We only have a couple minutes in this segment, but let me stick with another TV thing. Totally different. There is a new, in the States, there is a new Olympic channel. All Olympics, all the time. Now, of course, the Olympics are not on all the time. So these are taped former events that you've watched from Olympics gone by. These are documentaries of Olympic people. These are, it's all to do with the Olympics. If they had that in Canada, would you watch something like that? Would that be something that would interest you? Or do you think the average sports fan to be just tuned in to be watching replays of the 1984 Sarajevo Olympics? Or Greg Joy's silver medal in Montreal. Uh, I would really have to think about what else I could be doing other than that. Um, I get engaged, like I'm sure a lot of people do, in the Olympics when they're live. I watch badminton. I watch tabletop tennis if it's on. Um, I mean... I guess I'm going to say I'm not a whack job, but I might be by saying that. But, you know, I get engaged. I mean, I, Everybody when does. we've got a shot at something, I'm interested. I'm really not interested in watching a replay of any former sporting event, let alone past Olympics. And, you know, that's kind of really, though, Scott, how ESPN started. They didn't have anything live, right? They just had replays, um, and they had to kind of put on whatever they had because of the budget. But at least it was fairly relevant. See, I think that they, I think this is going to be, oh, if they I, do it right. I wouldn't watch it. You know, if, if they do this right, I think this thing could be huge. And I'll tell you how well, right would be. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the, on the show. There was a documentary done. Well, you, you know about the 30 for 30 documentaries that ESPN did a number of years ago, and it's carried on as a franchise now. A few weeks ago, they did one. It was a three-part series called The Best of Enemies. It was about the Lakers and the Celtics over the years, particularly in the 1980s when it was Bird versus Magic Johnson and the Bad Blood. It was absolutely terrific. They had all interviews with the guys now talking about these old stories. It was absolutely gripping television. Now, I was a Lakers fan. I was a diehard Lakers fan then. So, I mean, it reminded me, I hadn't thought about that I was brought back to that same level of abject hatred for the Celtics as when they were playing. If you had documentaries about the Ben Johnson thing and replay, don't just replay the race, replay Brian Williams breaking into his coverage later that evening with stuff. There's ways that you could, if you had Greg Joy with his high jump, but don't just show the high jump thing. Have Greg Joy narrating what was going on and what he was thinking. I think this could be, honestly a really intriguing thing to watch. I think people would watch it because, Don, of the very thing that you just said, when the Olympics are on, even though you couldn't care less about those sports otherwise, you watched them. And so because you watched them once, if you now got the the behind-the-scenes stories of those things, I think people would tune in to watch that. Well, but you you changed the option a little bit there. 
But that's well. But if all they're going to do is show show former Olympic events is one thing. If they if they're going to bring back, if you're going to show the Vancouver Olympics, and have Sidney Crosby narrate the highlights of the game, that's a game changer. That see to me, I don't know if they have that. I don't but know if they have it. Um, who was the? Uh, we were great in equestrian for a number of years. Daily, right? Um. Anyway, we from, uh, well from Perth. Miller, Ian Miller was Ian the, Miller uh, was was and, was the big star for and the horse was the star. Well, that that's always the debate. <laughs> it's it's the same with all the uh, the mayor thought he was. Yeah, go up to Perth and there's a beautiful. I think it's in Perth, a beautiful statue of Ian Miller and uh, his horse. The horse's name is eluding me right now. Um, but no, I, I look. I, you're I, I you're going to interview him. And those ESPN things, those thirty thirty things, are really, pardon me, really well done. If you can put a collage together of that and bring those guys back, and you know those athletes will, they'll be there. What else are they going to do? People who are Olympic stars, and I don't, I'm not demeaning them, but there, many of them, a few of them have gone on to great riches. Because there are some sports where if you're at the very top of your game in track and field or whatever, you can make a lot of money. But many of them, this is the one week of their life, the one moment of their life that identified them as who they are. I you know they're available to talk. John Montgomery, the, the skeleton race, now he's doing Amazing Race Canada now as the host. But you don't think he is free to talk about his gold medal winning run in Vancouver and Whistler? Of course he is. You go down, what's his name who won the uh, the first ever moguls, the Canadian, that Billado. You don't think that yeah. Billado has a few minutes to talk about winning the first gold on Canadian soil? Get him at the, right, the right time, he'd go on about anything. Uh, I'm yeah. sure Laura Fortino would be more than happy to chat about. Sure she would. The, setting up the gold medal winning goal and the whole... Olympic experience leading up to it. So and we've had right. her on here. We've had Shona Thorburn. We've had all these people. And they they love to talk about those things because they were life, for them, they were life-defining moments. For the country, in some cases, they were country-defining moments. Well, you know what? I, I guess one of the analogies might be there, there is Leaf TV and there hasn't been a whole lot of highlights in a lot since nineteen sixty. And that's the downside. Because I think you watch, when you tune in and you watch a little bit of Leaf TV, uh, it, it's... It doesn't move me. That that stuff doesn't, you know. But then again, watching game 46 of the 1945-46 season with no context of why I'm watching this, just an old black and white thing is, you know, whatever. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. When is the right time? We have two situations in southern Ontario right now. Two teams that are both looking particularly miserable in the standings and on the field. The Blue Jays are looking terrible right now. They look like, not only do they look terrible, but they look like they've essentially thrown in the towel a lot of nights. They just, there doesn't seem to be a lot of urgency. You've got, and when I say that, you've got a lot of games where they're not just losing. They're getting bombed. They're getting just killed. And closer to home here, we have the Tiger Cats who are 0-4 and going into two really hard games on the road and could be 0-6. Whether or not it would happen, when is the right time? What are the right circumstances to make a coaching change? 
I'm not arguing necessarily that either case is the right time for that, but what is the right time? Because there's been a lot of calls. You've heard it. There's been all kinds of clamor for Kent Austin to be removed as the Ticats head coach. I don't think he's going to be. I've heard less with John Gibbons, mostly because I think everybody finds John Gibbons to be a lovable, kind of goofy, southern, good old boy who offends nobody. But when, Don, when is the right time to make a coaching change? What are the conditions? When it starts affecting the gate. So it's got nothing to do with the play on the field or in the locker room. I, I think it has far less to do with, I think the manager of a baseball team has far less effect on the outcome than a lot of other sports. Essentially, the Blue Jays have a lot of the same players back this year. They're just playing horrible. Gibbons didn't do that to him. He didn't say, you know what? Why don't we screw everything up? If you get a chance to strike out or foul off or hit into a double, go ahead and do it. So I think baseball managers, when they win and when they lose, their contribution is overblown. I think if you've got the right team, I think a lot of managers could have handled the back-to-back Blue Jay teams. I thought Cito Gaston did a wonderful job because you're when you're that good, you're managing egos. So well, I don't think, think think about that for a second because it's a great it's a great point you bring up. In 1992, Cito Gaston manages the Blue Jays to the World Series, and whether he managed them to the World Series or just stayed out of the way enough to get them there, that's that's been a debate forever. But he won the World Series. Everyone thought Cito's a great manager. 1993, they win the World Series again. Everyone says, look, Cito Gaston took them to -to back-to-back championships. 1994, which was a year that was shortened by a strike, the Jays were way out of it. They'd had two great years, and then they crashed and burned. Same lineup, basically. Exact same situation as today, except they hadn't won two World Series. Was John Gibbons a good manager the past two years? Well, I use the analogy, so many people do. Like John Gibbons has said it before, when they win 10 straight or they win one out of 11. I'm the same manager. Don't give me all the credit when we're winning and don't blame. give me all the blame when we're losing. I think football's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, football, well, it's much more micromanaged. Yeah, football coaches get to determine who plays and when they play and what position they're playing and he has hands-on for all kinds of play calling and everything else. Very few quarterbacks get to call their own plays. I don't. Uh, I don't. You know, the Ticat quarterback's not calling his own plays. Claros, maybe he's seeing stuff out there, going, "Just let me do this." So the so the 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 input of a football coach versus a manager of a baseball team are two different kettles of fish. Same as hockey. You, if you've got good players, you can put them out. You're not going to tell them to give the puck away. I mean, they fundamentally understand it. Football is so technical, so many changes. The coach has so much influence on absolutely every play because it starts from a dead stop. I know hockey does, but, boy, it's in full motion right off the bat. It doesn't end in nine seconds or three seconds, right? But you think you think then that it's entirely or mostly about the gate. If people stop being interested in the team, it's time to change the coach to just change the coach, to change up the culture, that's, change up something. That's when you'll see Gibbons go down the road. What about here in Hamilton? 
I think Hamilton, from what I understand, is an entirely different dynamic. It's relationships with the president, the owner, and everything else. Um, I think that has far more input sometimes. In, in, the tentacles run are a little more entangled in the CFL. And it, it, I mean, the Rogers own the Blue Jays. I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, Ed Rogers and those guys don't have a lot of conversations and chats with John Gibbons because he, you know. But I think in, in the CFL it's far different. Well, so relationships all- are a lot stronger. So you're gonna you're going to get a little more time. If you have a good relationship, if you've got a bad relationship, you're going to be out the door. He'd be out the door now. Well, the I other said thing- last show, they're only 0-2 because they've only played two games. Yeah, They're only 0-4 because they've only played four. The other thing is that with Rodgers, with Gibbons, if they fire Gibbons, if they were to decide to make that move and they have to eat 3 or $4 million in salary, big deal. That's right. It's a little bit different. I mean, Bob Young is, an, is a still a wealthy man. But I don't think he's in the same position as the Rogers is that they want to be spending that kind of money. Anyway, got to run. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. When immigrants want to come, or refugees, or whomever wants to come into this country, they have to, as you know, everyone knows this, they have to take a citizenship test, and it outlines essentially, for lack of a better description what Canada is all about. It's the stuff that if you were going to become a Canadian citizen, you would understand so you could be a Canadian. And there have been disputes about what's in there and what isn't in there in the past. Uh, In fact, there's almost always some kind of disputes and they're almost always based on political things. If you are a liberal, you don't like some of the things that the conservative government puts in. If you're a conservative, you don't like some of the things that a liberal government puts in. That's that's not unique. And so the last one, it was last updated in 2011, which of course was when the Harper government was still in. So the liberal government didn't like some of the things that were there. Well, now it's 2017, the liberal government is in office and they've, they are looking to change it again to be a little more reflective of liberal government sensibilities. And so there are now things in there that are much more, well, they talk more about respecting treaties with indigenous peoples and paying taxes and filling out the census. And um, what else do they have? There's a new chapter on the evolution of gay rights in Canada and uh, a section on discrimination of people with disabilities and Japanese, there's a lot of things in there that, as I say, would be things you would expect. And most of those things, I think we could say, yeah, nobody's going to have too much of a problem with those things. That's, that's what is the reality in Canada. That's life in Canada. Um, It's there now, but what has been taken out is very interesting. And there's a number of things, but there are two things in particular. One that really stands out for me. The first thing that, now the Canadian press, by the way, has received a rough draft of what's going to be coming out. Whether this actually makes it as the final now that it's been released and there's been some blowback, we will see. But the first thing that was taken out of this was something that was put in by the conservative government in response to something that we know has been going on. And that was in the past, in the old one, 
there was a condemnation of what was in quotes, barbaric cultural practices like honor killings and female genital mutilation, which if you have many people coming here from other countries where those things may have, the people themselves, the immigrants themselves may have been seeking to escape from those kind of things. They may not be, they may or may not, but probably not bringing those customs here. But the fact is, we know they exist. In fact, just last week, the Toronto Star, a week week and a bit ago, the Toronto Star had a big front page story on the fact that there are Canadians who are heading home. They take their daughters back to their own countries. It's it's, It's disturbing. It's gross. It's horrible for them to get female genital mutilation. It's, it's a, it's, it's not something that is nice to talk about, but we do know that it's still going on, but that, that kind of thing, we've, we've decided that that should not be pointed out here, that we don't stand for that. That's not part of our culture. Okay. I, I disagree with that. I think if someone is bent out of shape about hearing that, they should be honestly changing their feelings about Canada or about what we stand for here. We don't stand for that stuff. And I would not stand for someone, if I had a neighbor or a coworker or a friend or someone else who I knew was involved in those kind of practices, I would tell them to their face that that's horrible and that's disgusting and what they're doing to their daughter or the females in their family are completely unacceptable. I hope you would too. But we're not going to have that. But here's the other one. And this one, see, all the things that I talked about before have been either seen as cultural or political or social. And we can have disagreements on some of these things, but you know, you know that it's going to be there because that's it, this, is, this is the reality. This is what our country is. But here is the part that really surprised me. Also excised from the new rough draft of the citizenship study material is a line that was put in in 2011, and I think absolutely correctly, quite honestly, that one of the obligations of Canadian citizenship, ready for this? One of the obligations of Canadian citizenship is getting a job. That is going to be taken out. Now, there can be no, in my mind, there can be no other interpretation other than that is no longer seen as an obligation to someone if we're going to take it out. If that's not going to be presented now to people who are coming to this country and told getting a job is what you would be expected to do. what other interpretation could there be other than we don't really expect you to do that now? Which means one of two things. Either we are saying the job hunt here in Canada is so hopeless that, boy, we're not going to put that kind of pressure on you because there's no chance you're getting a job. And if that's the case, I do wonder whether we should be reevaluating perhaps the number of people we're bringing into this country. 
for no other reason than if we don't, if we're, if our government is saying there aren't enough jobs so that your expectation should never be to get a job. And by having that written down, that's only going to make you feel poorly about yourself when you arrive. That is a pretty devastating indictment of your own economy. But I don't think that that's what that's all about. I don't really know why. But is this not... See, I let me back up. I believe wholeheartedly when you look at the history of immigration in this country, the people who come to Canada, and some of you are going to disagree. That's fine. I disagree with you on this one. The history of those who come to this country, by and large, in the vast majority of cases, the history is they come here to carve out a better life for themselves. They come here with every intention of working. That's, that, I believe, is why so many people go look back for generations, the people who came from Europe, the people who come from everywhere. The ex- expectation is, I'm coming to Canada to do better for my family. I want to get a job. What this is saying, by taking this out, and the fact that it was only put in in 2011 is irrelevant. Because it was in. So why would you take that out. Is it really our expectation now? Is it really our country's position now that it is not an obligation of those who come here to be productive? Is that is that what we're really going to be telling someone now that when you come here, there's no expectation that you're going to work. Just feel free. Come along. This to me is devastating because this is exactly what cynics and critics of immigration and refugee situations, this is what they say. They just want to come here to take up all of our resources. They just want to come here to take our welfare. They just want to come here to get our medical benefits. They being whoever is going to be coming to this country. As I said a moment ago, I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that most people who are coming here are simply looking to get free stuff. Sure, there may be some, but I don't believe that's most. And I think history shows that that is not most people. But by taking this out, why would we take this out? What would be the benefit of removing this other than to say, no, you don't have to now work. That That's my interpretation of it. I can't believe that our government has taken the position that they are now saying, and I can't think of any other interpretation There is no expectation on you to find work once you get here. Get it if you like, but can someone offer me? I'd love it if someone could offer me a different explanation of this. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. We know that not everybody will get a job. Some people don't speak the language. Some people don't have the skills. We know that's the case. But is it really necessary to remove the idea that your obligation as a new Canadian is to work and be a productive member of society? That that is the goal. That is the target. That is what you are going to strive for when you come here. We welcome you, but the expectation is that you are going to work once you get here, that you're going to do something to be a productive member of society. How What would be the benefit of removing that from our citizenship test or our citizenship study guide? Other than to say, other than to say, what, that we are happy to support you for as long as we need to? 
Is that is that really what our government is telling them? That you that there is not an expectation now that you're going to work? And again, the fact that this was not included into this guide until 2011 doesn't mean it wasn't the expectation. But once it was put into writing, what would be the benefit of removing it? Let me give you another example. We now have... In this document that has been written by the Liberal government, and as I say, they always change based on the politics and the sensibilities of the government in power. But now that into this document is written a longer piece on the rights of the uh, LGBTQ community, the gay community and, and beyond, now that this has been written into this, If the Conservatives win the next election and rewrite this document again, as they probably will, and removed that paragraph, that section, would anybody out there not interpret that as a direct comment about what was in that paragraph? Would anybody say, oh, no, they were just trying to save government paper? Oh, no, they were just trying to streamline the document. No, that would be seen as a direct attack because the fact that it wasn't in there before and it is now, it's now there. It's now in writing. So unless it offends the sensibilities of Canadians, you wouldn't expect that it would be taken out. You wouldn't take something like that out now. It would be a political furor. It would be a, there would be people rising up to say, wait a second, you are being homophobic. You are slamming those who are from the LGBTQ community. You can't take that out of there. So, because once it's there, it's now there. So once the idea is in writing and put in front of you that, and I think a benign comment, quite honestly, that once you come here, your obligation is to get a job. Your obligation is to get a job. And again, understand what the word obligation means. It means you will, to the very best of your ability, set out to do that. Obligation does not mean you will be sent back to wherever you came from if you don't get one. You will have your citizenship revoked if you don't. If you are looking and looking and looking and you're trying to make yourself better and taking some training and learning English and getting better at that to get a job and you are still having trouble, no one, no one is going to be holding that against you. If there is, if that person is out there who's going to hold it against that immigrant or refugee who is trying to better themselves in order to be a productive member of society, you've got your things screwed up. If someone is going out there to try and try and try and they still can't get a job, they are fulfilling their obligation. That's not what the word obligation means, but the obligation is that you are going to work. But that's a pretty benign statement, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't, isn't that exactly what we have expected of Canadians forever? From the very first settlers, what happens if the first people, the first ones who came over here, now we, we're not going to go into whole, the whole indigenous discussion right now, that's a different, dis- but what if all the first settlers who came over here, if there were two or three in that group who said, yeah, you know what, go ahead and build yourself the log cabins and the whatever, I, I, I don't really feel it today, I'm not going to be putting in any work, but once you get it done, yeah, I'll happily move in. No, that's not, from the very beginning of our country, 
and of Canada, we've come here and the expectation has been that you will get a job. Why? What would possibly be the purpose of removing that line from our citizenship guide? What would possibly be the reason? I can't for the life of me understand because I don't think it's something that is insulting. I don't think it's something that's crushing to someone's ego. I don't think it's a malignant line that's in there that somehow people are going to say, well, I can't be a Canadian if there's an obligation to work. That to me is, there's, there's other things that are involved in being a Canadian, but that to me should be right near the top. We are happy to bring you in. We are happy for you to become a Canadian. What we ask of you, we can get into the other details later, but what we ask of you is that you keep our laws, you respect our people, and you get a job and be a productive member of society. And all the other stuff we can explain to you, and we would like you to become that, and we would like to teach you about being a Canadian, but those things are the starting point. What could possibly be the reason to take getting a job as an obligation out of our citizenship guide. I'm, I'm, I'm completely at a loss. I'm completely at a loss. I completely don't understand what would be the purpose of doing that. If you have some great theory, please, 905-645-3221, star 9900, or radley at 900chml.com, send me an email. If you can offer even a pie-in-the-sky idea of what would be the purpose of removing a line that says you have an obligation to get a job or to work. I'd love to hear it. Because I think this is one of those things that, as I said a moment ago, actually then flips the table and plays to the suspicions and cynicisms and stereotypes of immigrants and refugees that are unfair. And that is that they want to come here only to suck on the public teat, that they are here only to get and not to give. And sure, there are some, of course there are, but the majority historically of people who have come to this country have been contributors. But by taking this out, what you're doing is reinforcing that stereotype. Oh, you can come here and there's no expectations on you. Just, we'll, we'll, we'll prop you up. We'll support you. We'll, we'll keep you happy. That's not what people want to do when they come here. They, don't, they, they may come here, they may flee for various reasons, but when they come here as well, they want to make a better life for themselves. What is possibly wrong with saying an obligation of Canadians is to get a job and to work? Love to have someone offer that kind of explanation offer an explanation for that because I I just, for the life of me, cannot understand how that's a problem. How that need that, how that needs to be taken out of our citizenship guidebook, how people coming to this country can't be confronted with that daunting, horrifying fact. If you come here, we expect you to do something. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.